we didn't evolve to eat meat. There's so much focus on eating meat and, and, and carnivore. Yes. It isn't the introduction of meat that makes the difference. It's the introduction of animal. Hi everyone, welcome back to my channel. I have a very special guest, Dr. Bill Schindler. Now, Bill is a modern day Indiana Jones. He is a food archeologist and an author. Bill, thank you so much for being here. It is my pleasure to be here. Can't wait to get into the discussion. Now, you have been part of the great human race. Can you explain what that is and how you became part of that? Sure. So the great human race uh, was a, a series that uh, National Geographic put together about five years ago now, and it was a 10 episode series and, and it was brilliant. So what was going on at that time was um, it's died down a little bit, but at that time, about five or six years ago, it was a huge uh, push for survival TV. And there was all kinds of different shows were popping up here and there all over the world. Uh, and television really got flooded uh, with it. And even though a lot of people were watching it, it started to get really silly as people were trying to develop new shows. And they were, you know, there was people, they would take people and get them naked and throw them in the woods. And then they were taking people and tying their legs together and making them survive with their legs tied together and handcuffed and all sorts of different things. But National Geographic decided to do something really, really smart. They said, let's capitalize on the survival TV genre, but tell the most important story that could ever be told one of our shared ancestral past the human the, the human story they put us in 10 different places around the world and uh, there was time and location specific so each one of these places was selected because something at that time period was uh, a technological development some sort of invention was so incredibly important that it allowed us to do something grow bigger brains uh populate a different area you know so, something like that and it was my job to replicate the technologies from that time period. And then we lived or survived using only those technologies for a period of about 10 days at each time. So we started at two and a half million years ago in Tanzania, went wow. through Africa, through the Middle East, through Asia, and ended at Oregon in the U.S. at about 4,000 years ago. And it was it was brilliant. I mean, it, no matter... Uh, who you are, what your uh, background is, what your tradition is, uh, where you come from in the world, your socioeconomic status, your politics, it doesn't matter. All of us uh, have in our ancestral past this shared story. And it was such a, such an honor to, to replicate that and share it with the world. What's that shared story that you're talking about that us humans have, irrespective of culture, irrespective of where we come from? Part of it is our evolutionary track. So the development of our ancestors, um, speciating, changing, our growing bodies, our growing brains, our growing populations are, are spreading around the world and populating the different parts of the world we have now. But that's part of it. Um, but on the back of that is, and, and what helped drive that and support it is technological development, which is the, the focus of a lot of my work. And uh, what's really, really powerful about it, and something that I realized about 15, 20 years ago, is that almost every single technological development, almost every single prehistoric technology ever invented has something to do with food. Now, we know our ancestral dietary past helped fuel and support uh, our, our changing bodies through millions of years that eventually resulted in creating homo sapiens, us 300,000 years ago. Um, and if the diet is that important to our, to the development of us as a species and almost every single prehistoric technology had something to do with food and, and supporting that diet, 
And understanding those technologies, I think, is crucial to understanding the best way to, to nourish ourselves even today. We hear that we were evolved to eat meat. And I know that your perspective is very different and yet extremely fascinating. So can you tell us from an evolution point of view, dating back three million years ago, what yeah. were we eating? So I, 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 I hate diving deep. I don't hate, I love diving deep, but, but, but I know it's difficult sometimes when we're talking about on the scale of millions of years, it's so hard to, for some of us to even wrap our brains around because it's just an extensive period of time yeah. and, and, and trying to understand the importance of like banging two rocks together and creating humans. I know some of this is, is, is um, sort of out there, but bear with me for a minute. And semantics are really, really important here. We didn't evolve to eat meat. Introducing animals into our diets supported our evolutionary track and supported our massive body and brain growth. And, they're, and, and they're, 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 those are really big differences. So let me, um, let, let, let's do a real quick sort of uh, down and dirty. This is, our, this is how our diets changed over time. About five to seven million years ago, our ancestors first stood upright. We became completely bipedal. We were, uh, we were more comfortable walking on two feet than four. A lot of things changed at that time. At that time period, we were eating a limited amount of fruit, a limited amount of vegetables and insects. Now, I say a limited amount because when we try to understand how uh, our ancestors were foraging wild plants, we can't use the way that we experience vegetables in the grocery stores as, as a comparison. It's completely different. One of the big differences is that, um, well, period, all plants on this planet, even the grocery store ones have toxins in them, right? And we need to understand that. And I hope we can dive deeper into that later. But what the reason I bring it up now is because the, the wild versions of these plants, um, in many cases, are even more toxic. And especially when we're talking about things like roots and corms and tubers, these very high energy foods, incredibly, incredibly dangerous, incredibly toxic. And without any kind of technology that allows us to detoxify these plants, um, it leaves us only with a very limited amount of plants that we can safely, our ancestors could safely consume. Plus, our ancestors at this time were smaller than us. They're about three and a half feet tall with brains about the size of my fist. So if, wow. if I took you and you know anybody listening to this and stripped you down naked and threw you in the middle of the woods and said, eat and, and, and feed yourself with just what you have, you know, your biological apparatus, there's not much going for us, right? We're not that strong. Our teeth are almost useless. We don't have huge canines. Um, our nails are useless. Uh, we can't fly. We can't uh, climb very well. We can't dig into the ground very well. So when I say they're eating a limited amount of fruits and vegetables, hyper-local, hyper-seasonal, only the ones that don't have any toxins in them hardly whatsoever, and ones that we can just gather with our hands. That doesn't leave us much throughout the entire year. The most nutrient-dense bioavailable part of their diets were definitely the insects, right. no doubt. And this persisted for millions of years and it was fine for them because they're, they were smaller, they had smaller brains, they had smaller um, or lower nutritional uh, needs to support those bodies. Females were much smaller than males. The most nutrient needy times in a female's life is when they're very young and they're developing their own brains and their own bodies. When they're pregnant, and when they're lactating, and when they're lactating, it's the highest uh, nutrient need. And if, you know, the, the most important thing any species can do is reproduce viable offspring and make sure that offspring can reproduce viable offspring. And if that works, then the species survives. And if, there, if, it, if it breaks down, then the species goes extinct. So 
uh, our ancestor, female ancestors stayed small, we think, because that lowered the sort of baseline nutritional requirements. So when they were pregnant, when they were lactating, then they could meet those, those needs. And eating the insects, eating the, eating the, uh, the fruits and, and, and plants worked. But what was transformative happened about 3.3 million years ago when our ancestors for the first time ever struck two rocks together. And this is when we, uh, for the first time, introduced meat into our ancestral dietary past. And this is sort of how I envision it happening. When a um, predator on the African savanna takes down another large animal, and remember, when we talk about you know, now three and a half million years ago, we're not talking about lions and hyenas and buzzards and those sorts of animals. We're talking about their ancestors, right? Because there were no lions okay. then, but there were the ancestors of lions, which were bigger and nastier than the, than the ones we have today. So, you know, these huge, nasty animals that are built to hunt, built to rip apart flesh off a carcass, the, everything about them is designed for this. Um, when they hunt, they would take their, take their prey down, rip it apart, dive right into the middle, and gorge themselves on the blood, the fat, and the organs, the most nutrient-dense bioavailable parts of the animals. And they would do the same thing that we do after we gorge ourselves on a Thanksgiving dinner. You know, we go in and sleep it off. So they would gorge themselves on the inside of this animal and then go off and find a nice warm place, usually up on a rock or something, and, and, and go sleep and take a nap. And they'd leave their kill still covered in meat, covered in flesh, for the animals that are perfectly designed to scavenge, the scavengers to come in. And because of their nails or their beaks or their teeth or their um, claws or their digestive tracts are perfectly designed to scavenge, they come in, the ancestors to modern day buzzards, the ancestors to modern day hyenas, and they feed off of this carcass until that lion returns or that you know, ancestor to the lion. And our, our ancestors, our Australopithecian ancestors who are nibbling a little, a little bit of fruit and, and, and vegetables and, and insects are watching this happen. And, they, and I'm confident they're looking at themselves and thinking, man, I can't do it. Like, I can't go down there and rip any of this meat off. I can't, you know, I can't do anything. It's like they don't have an invitation to the party. But so they physically them, can't do it because they don't have the apparatus or they don't have the tools to do it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, they don't. Remember, there's no tools whatsoever. So at that it time. would be like yeah. at that time. So it yeah. would be like even even today when we're stronger and, and, our, and bigger than our ancestors at that time, if we said, you know, run in real quick before the lion comes back and rip as much flesh off as you can, what are you going to do? I mean, maybe you could take a couple of bites, but you're sure, sure not getting any big pieces off and bringing it back to your, your grandparents that are waiting back at camp. So what happens at this time is one, one of our ancestors picked, and we found the evidence for this, picks up two rocks of the right material, struck them at the perfect angle, and in less than a second, literally at that moment, completely transformed everything about our diets, our relationship with our environments, all of it. They created a durable, sharp edge in less than a second. And it may not seem like much, but that durable, sharp edge is more durable and sharper than anything we have on our bodies. And they could run down with this razor sharp knife and start hacking off huge pieces of meat and quartering animals and bringing pieces of it back to camp and sharing it with the sick or the elderly or, 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 or children. And we know that they're doing this because not only do we find the tools, but we find the bones of these animals that show butchering marks made from the tools. So this is great. This is the inch. And we also see some of the long bones busted open for marrow extraction. So 
this at this moment between 3.3 and 3.4 million years ago we introduced for the first time into our diets meat okay now you think that would be the end of the story but it's not because what, what we what's what's crazy about it is that nothing really changes our bodies get a little bit bigger our brains get a little bit bigger but nothing substantial it isn't until a million and a half years later about two million years ago that two technological innovations uh, allow us to allow our bodies and brains to jump in size almost to modern proportions. One of them is the control of fire, and the other one is the ability to hunt. Right. Now, you might say, well, why do we need to hunt? Now, what's the difference? We're already, we're already scavenging this meat. We already have meat. It's not a big difference. It's a huge difference because as uh, at three and a half million years ago, we went from gatherers to scavenger gatherers. But at two million years ago, for the first time ever, we became hunter-gatherers. And when we're hunting, we're the predators, and we have first access to any part of that animal we want. So it's when we access the blood, the fat, and the organs, in addition to the meat, that we are able to create and flood our bodies and nourish our bodies with uh, you know, the most bioavailable, safest, um, nutrient-dense foods we've ever, ever had. And that's when our bodies jump in size. That's when our body, our brains jump in size. Again, the difference, and, and I, I really think this is an incredible um, or, or a very important point because there's so much focus on eating meat and, and, and carnivore. Yes. It isn't the introduction of meat that makes the difference. It's the introduction of animal. The Animals whole animal are essential. Nose to tail. whole animal. Got it. And, you know, not only, and I hope we can talk about this more later too, but and yes. the cool thing about a nose to tail approach to animals is it's not just the most nourishing way to include animals in our diets, but it hits all the important things. It's the most ethical way, it's the most sustainable way, and it's the most economic way to include animals in our diets. Okay, I guess the main question that people listening to this, and I even I have, we live in the modern day, we have jobs, a busy lifestyle, an expensive <laughs> lifestyle. And I know I was also listening to you uh, talking about the importance of supporting local farmers, supporting yeah. local dairy, butchers, all this kind of thing. How do we include that kind of lifestyle with our modern day, very stressful lifestyle? Yes, but it's not an easy one because any most of the time when I get asked a question like that, uh, a lot of times what people are looking for is that, that quick answer, how can I not change anything else about my life but, in, but include what you're saying I should do? Yes. And, and that's not possible. If we shift our priorities a little bit and really understand how important it is to support our local farmers, have a direct connection with our food, take uh, links out of our food chain, uh, nourish our families, I mean, all of those, have them connect with their food. And we place as much importance on that as we do to sitting and watching Netflix. <laughs> you know, there was, I read a great article by Michael Pollan, Michael Pollan wrote it several years ago, but I just became aware of it recently and I read it. And he was talking about the Food TV network and how it actually has done the opposite of what it should have been doing. And he, he quoted some statistics, but people were spending more time watching other people cook than they were spending in their own kitchen. Cooking. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's crazy. People spend, people spend more time watching other people's lives, which is fake reality. It's not actually yep. real. Then focusing on their family, focusing on their own growth, focusing on their own experiences. It's so true. I 100% agree. So that's why I don't answer- have a TV. <laughs> We do have a TV, but <laughs> we do have a TV, but I, but I, but I hear you hundred percent. And that that's the answer. We have to shift some priorities 
Um, and most importantly, what I think we need to do is empower ourselves and, and trust ourselves. There is so much incredible information out there uh, about how we should be eating, how we should be preparing food, all, all these sorts of, but there's also a massive quantity of terrible information. Um, and it, and it's, it's very, very confusing. And with all of this information, people are sitting back and wonder, well, where, where, you know, who should I listen to? Where should I get this information? And the answer is you just look in the mirror because we, for most of the tools that we need to understand how we should be eating, it's already in you. We just need to get in, in touch with our senses, reconnect with our food and cook from scratch. And if we did those things, we would solve a vast majority of, of our problems. So if you, if you take, um, you know, and I know this is sort of cliche, but all of the money that we're spending on things that are making us less healthy and all the time that we're spending on these things that are making us less healthy and all the medical bills that we incur now or will be incurring in the future and all that and, and, and really take a good holistic view of our lives, then bringing a pig, half a pig home and throwing it on your counter for one Saturday every two, three months uh, is, you know, four times a year is completely worth it. I just literally today just butchered half a pig for some work that we're doing. Um, wow. It took me just a few hours. That pig cost me $140. Now we're using it commercially for a bunch of things that we're doing, but for our family, that pig would feed our family for quite some time on $140 and just a few hours work. Now, if you were doing that in your, and, and listen, we used to do it. We have a commercial space now, but we used to do it in our kitchen all the time. We throw it right on the counter. And I know that seems so strange. That's not strange. Going to the grocery store when somebody else has done that for us that we don't even know their name, that's actually really, really strange. But um, doing that, I, it's, it's so important because not only do we have high quality food from a local farmer that we directly supported with our, with our money, but we, it, it, we can do anything with that. We have fat, we have bones, we have marrow, we have meat, we have skin, we have kidneys, we have all of it and can just do just about any, anything we want with it. So um, the answer is yes, we can do it. And, and I'll tell you, I'm very, very proud that uh, my, I've, my wife and I have three kids. They're right now 18, 16, and 14. We, we, wow. we live in sort of a suburban area. Um, we don't live in the middle of the woods somewhere. And we've done it. Like they play lacrosse, they play soccer, they do dance, they go to school, they have a social life, and we cook most of our food from scratch. We know our farmers, we forage, we hunt. Some people say, okay, that's great, but you know, you can't scale that. You can. We started, my wife and I, and my whole family started a place called the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, where we are producing that same food for the community. Now, it's not in the middle of New York City, and we don't have 5 million customers, but we do have a strong customer base, and we are cooking. There's no two ingredients put together outside of the walls of our building, and only by our team. And it, it, it really, really is doable. I do want to ask eating the whole animal because there's this thing about eating organ meats and we've heard around too much vitamin A. How do you know how much we should be eating? So when you do have the whole animal, we have the skin, the meat, the organs, the blood, we have everything to it. So, and I know the answer to it because I've heard you with your answer to it, <laughs> but for those that don't know, because this is really important, when we're looking at a whole animal, we get scared in terms of, should we be eating organ meats? Is it too toxic? Because we're hearing once a week, infrequently, eat the meat, eat the meat. Now you're saying meat is the least nutrient dense part of the animal. So when it comes to the blood, and by the way, how do you eat the blood? 
and organ meats because that's what I'm thinking in my head. I know my audience. I know the average person and you probably know the average person. They think blood. How do I eat blood? But organ meats, how often and how do you include the blood from an animal in your diet? Yes. I'm so glad you asked me and I, you already know the answer I'm going to say, but I, I, know I think the it's answer. a very important one. <laughs> Uh, it, but it took me a little while to come up with the answer because I, I was getting asked that question all the time and I didn't listen I I am not a nutritionist I am an archaeologist and an anthropologist of a chef and that is how I view food that is how I view it's through that those lenses that I view food and nutrition and health I went back to the lenses that I view the world through and I said yes I absolutely do know how to answer this question it's a question that we've never had to ask before. It is a, it is a problem and a, and a quandary that we've created because of the modern food system. If you went to, if you go to the Hadza, the oldest hunter-gatherer group in the world today and ask them that question, they look at you and like, you're crazy. Like, what do you mean? I kill an animal, we eat the entire thing, and then we go kill another animal. And now we can go to the, because somebody else on mass on a mass scale is killing those animals, butchering them, taking them apart, packaging them, sending them to the grocery store and putting them on shelves for the first time ever in the history of our species, we can go in and say, oh, I want five packs of chicken liver without having to buy 40 chickens at the same time that went with that liver. So the answer is now there's a word called teleological, which means directed, right? So um, a lot of us view evolution and technological advancement as this very directed thing, like with a purpose. Like um, a lot of times when people ask me, well, how did, how did somebody figure that out so long? How did they, how did they figure out they should be doing this so long ago? Um, that's from that teleological uh, perspective where we think things were invented in the past because you know, our ancestors were smart enough to figure out they had to do this and find a way to do it. That's probably not what happened most of the time. What probably happened most of the time is that there were a lot of groups of people doing all sorts of different things. And the people that nailed it, like literally crushed it and did it perfect, had healthier babies that had healthier babies that had healthier babies. And it just continued. And, and these approaches to food and diet and health and everything else they were doing just became enculturated, they became part of tradition. It doesn't have to have a reason behind it. Now, the groups that didn't do those things didn't do so well. And it isn't that there was one group of humans that you know persisted throughout time. A lot of a lot of our ancestors, a lot of humans died out. A lot of populations did starve. A lot of populations that weren't doing very well. A lot of populations got conquered by other groups that were doing it perfectly. Um, so it uh, it isn't that we figured out we should be doing these things and we did it and then we no. it is groups for doing these things our bodies changed in response and then it just continued and, and it's great so the answer to the question is i don't believe we should be eating you know a pound of chicken liver and raw testicles every single day because it's not realistic and for as much as i think it is not a ancestrally appropriate nor ethical way to consume animals by eating literally just a, a, a T-bone steak every single day, right? Because you can, because you have enough money, you can go to the grocery store and do it. You know, and, and while meanwhile the rest of the animal is getting wasted somewhere else, mm. it's just as it's just as strange to be going after uh, you know all this liver, all these kidneys, or all this spleen. It doesn't it doesn't make sense. So the answer is um, to me. 
buy the whole animal and ever raise or hunt the animals possible, but I realize it's out of a lot of people's reach. Buy the biggest cut of meat, the entire animal, whatever you can, whatever represents the most of that animal at a time. It's the cheaper way to do it. And it's also gives you more perspective. Oh, this is, this is what I have in front of me. Let me eat all of this. And then I'll go back to the store, the farmer's market or the farm and get, and, and, and get another one of these things. So as a very so basic that, example, like even like when it comes to chicken, don't buy chicken breast, chicken thigh, drumstick, buy the whole chicken. I know that's meat. I know that's meat. It's not organs. But as a very basic example, that's the whole kind of animal eating. And that's cheaper than, for example, buying separate cuts of meat. The next stage of it is to buy part of the whole animal. It doesn't have to be like the whole sure. lamb or the cow. 100%. And really buying that whole chicken is even uh, more important than than you just made it sound because it's yeah it's 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 the whole chicken it's the breast it's the wings it's the drumstick it's all that and it's the skin and the bones, the bones. and the marrow and in yes. many cases it has the heart and the gizzard and uh, what else in there heart and, and gizzard and, and, eat the, all and the of liver it, right yeah yeah eat all of it and here's yes. the other thing you don't it, it's great if you eat it you know eat all of it when you're there but I, I love pate. I love chicken liver pate. I love it. Um, it doesn't make sense to make chicken liver pate with one liver. So what I do is when we buy a whole chicken, I have a couple bags in my freezer, Ziploc bags, and I'll take the heart and I put it in one bag and I take the liver and I put it in another bag, put it in the freezer. And the next week when I buy another chicken, I'll get another heart and another liver. I put in, and then when I have, you know, four or five livers, I go ahead and make, and, and, and make pate out of it. And you know that again, even though you're not eating the liver every day or every week, it still is in the same sort of proportion, which makes sense. I believe on a nutritional level, but also on, uh, on an ethical level, you take that whole chicken, you eat the whole chicken <laughs> and you're using, using the entire chicken, save the bones and make bone broth from it. Same yeah. thing. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a, it, it really, really works. There was another part of the, the question that you had, and I forget blood. what it was, I apologize. The blood, like oh, the how blood, do you incorporate? Because blood. blood is like super important and that's something that we don't hear about in terms of consuming blood. How do you consume the blood from an animal? <laughs> <laughs> so there, there's several barriers to, to eating blood. And I don't want you to think that uh, we're by any means vampires and we don't consume a massive quantity of blood so <laughs> at all. Um, I, and I actually wish we consumed more than we did, but there's several barriers. One is um, here in the U.S., and I don't know what it is in different parts of the world, but here in the U.S., there are um, it, it's difficult to get fresh blood unless you know the butcher. Um, and if that butcher has gone through the right steps, it's legal. It's legal for a butcher in an abattoir or really an abattoir to to, har to take an animal, harvest it and collect the blood and sell the blood. Um, that's legal. What what that butcher or abattoir has to do is have gone through the steps to uh, show the F or the USDA that they can do it in a manner that's safe and it has to be approved. So if an abattoir butcher says they can't keep the blood, that's not true. They can, but they just haven't gone through the right step to be able to do it. Um, anyhow, so it, there, there's sort of that element that's a little bit difficult, but you can get it and uh, you can also find places online to get it frozen. It's not as good as fresh, but it's not terrible if it's frozen. Um, there's also that cultural barrier. And I think that's the one you're really talking about. That, yes. that weird, like, are we eating blood? Like, we don't want any blood. Um, 
it's not an issue in, in the UK. It's not an issue in Ireland. I mean, in fact, it's not an issue in Spain. One of my favorite foods on the planet is Mortilla de Burgos, uh, the blood sausage of Burgos, Spain. It's, it's fantastic. Um, and it's celebrated. But if I put blood sauces on a plate here in the U.S. They, and in Australia. Funny. <laughs> yes, and absolutely. It's, it's probably equally in Australia. Same. Um, there is this is another one that you probably would have to um, either go to a really high end restaurant and eat. And, and that's what I would suggest. Either either if you happen to be traveling to one of the countries where it is tradition and, and normal right to have this try it the full irish breakfast is always has blood sausage in it and it's delicious um but if you're if you're somewhere else you're probably gonna have to go to a high-end restaurant to try it but you know what do it because it's probably made really really well and when you cook blood and any of these other things these organ meats and any of it um uh if it's done well, you're celebrating the flavor and the texture and the present, the visual appeal of what it is. Um, you're not trying to hide it. And if it's done really well, you, you will be a convert. But uh, otherwise, um, there are some really good ways to make it at home. Um, um, there's some really good blood sausages that are not difficult to make that um, I think I think are absolutely fantastic. Other chefs that are doing really cool things. You know, blood pasta is not uncommon. Blood ice cream is not uncommon. The, but it is a very weird. It, it's something the, the that's not it's common weird, knowledge. Right? Yeah, it's something that's not common knowledge. So when you talk about, you know, even like when it comes to carnival. And for most people, if you just say that you eat meat, organs, and anything that comes from an animal, they find it restrictive. And they think, oh, but like mm -hmm. our healthy diet is lots of, you know, vegetables and fruits and seed oils. And when you go into the, even what you're talking about, which is eating the whole animal, organs, eating blood, all these things, it's something that's just not common knowledge. And when it's not common knowledge, we just think it's strange. But really from an evolution point of view, that's where we come from. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I taught a I taught a foraging class, an urban foraging class yesterday in Washington, DC. And we literally walked through the streets of Washington, DC and foraged for hours and then came back and cooked everything. And I told everybody ahead of time, and it's applicable to this. I said, listen, we're gonna we're gonna walk through the streets and Every, and we're going to pick the plants and the cracks of the sidewalk and everybody's going to look at us really like we're really, really strange. I said, you have to understand when they're doing that, don't feel bad because we're not the strange ones. The people that are going to the grocery store to buy their vegetables, that's the strange thing. The first, yes. the first supermarket in the world was in 1913, right? I mean, we have been harvesting wild food for millions of years and the fact that we go to the grocery store to get our food and don't know anybody involved in the process of raising uh, harvesting packaging shit all of it is really really weird so we're not the weird ones <laughs> everybody else is 